All right. So I've got a couple of things that I wanted that I want to show. Shannon, give me a thumbs up if you can see the keynote. Okay, perfect. Um, so I want to go through, and if if there's time, I want to. I have a little uh, special surprise. Uh, in it cooked up and in we'll see if I, if I got too fancy with it or not, but, uh, but hopefully it'll all work out really well and we'll be just fine. But I got like a, a hundred different things going on on my screen right now. So, uh, so just, uh, just bear with me. Um, so tonight we're, we're looking at, um, Solomon actually building the temple and actually preparing all kinds of stuff, um, to, to build the temple. And the way that I'm going to try to approach this is tonight is really going to be the facts of the passage and just, you know, that Solomon built a temple and sort of lay out, just kind of get our bearings around what, what he did and where, and, you know, the look of the temple and that kind of thing. And then in subsequent weeks, we're going to talk about the theology of the temple. And I want to prepare you before, before I forget that next week, we're not going to meet. Uh, I'm going to be out on next Wednesday. And then the Wednesday after that, it's likely to be recorded, but not live. So you'll be able to hear it or you'll be able to, to see it. I'm still working on how that's going to happen. But, um, but Andrea has to go out of town for a funeral. And so I'm, I'm going to be uh, solo dad. So it's going to be, uh, it's, I'm going to have to pre-record it and pre-record. all that kind of stuff. So um, that's the plan right now anyway. And I'll update you along the way as it, as, it, as it comes. But the idea is to lay the groundwork for the temple, no pun intended, and then uh, in subsequent weeks, unpack the theology of the temple and help us understand. So we're going to spend some time in First Kings five through nine ish or so, and um, so just kind of you know buckle up. We're gonna we're gonna be here for a little while um, to review what's happened in the last couple of weeks. Uh, remember Solomon's uh, Solomon's gained obviously wisdom from the Lord. The Lord has answered his prayer and has given him a lot of wisdom. It's become evident to a lot of people. One thing we saw last week is he begins um, putting people, uh, uh, governors, if you will, um, uh, or officials over particular areas of Israel so that uh, they can collect once a month the basically kind of like a, a portion of that area's produce, that the area's crops and uh, and wealth, and send it to the capital city. So basically, one out of the twelve months they send up to Jerusalem, and then they keep the other eleven months of the year. And uh, and and by that, Solomon, uh, uh, the kingdom grew in wealth, in incredible wealth, and um, through that sort of little income tax, if you will. And so we what we've seen is that the wisdom that the Lord gave to Solomon was not just um, was not just wisdom for, um, you know, to make decisions over, you know, individual court cases or something like that, but actual wisdom to govern the affairs of the kingdom, put things in order, make sure things run in a smooth way and make sure everything is, um, is, is, uh, in line in, in, in the best way possible that the kingdom actually functions really well. And so Solomon, um, 
but Solomon not only ruled over, over Israel, he also ruled over the kingdoms from all the way from the Euphrates to the, the Philistines to the border of Egypt. So his kingdom spread uh, further than even David had established the kingdom. And part of that's due to wealth, part of that's due to influence, part of that's due to his own wisdom and his own know-how. And the other part is as the country grows in wealth and power and influence, they also are uh, king, little nations that are around are, you know, more inclined to, you know, get on board, if you will, with, um, with, um, with Israel because they're prosperous. And perhaps if we, you know, kind of partner up with Israel, we'll benefit from their prosperity. We see a lot of the same things today. A, a lot of nations will partner with America because of the wealth coming from America and, and hoping that it will stem to them. And so, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's a pretty common thing. And, and so uh, we see this with, with Solomon's kingdom as well, with the kingdom of Israel we saw last week. But we also saw theologically that, that the author is actually establishing uh, this connection between Solomon, who's the head over the kingdom of God and about to build the temple, and Adam, uh, who had established the temple uh, or who had, who had established the Garden of Eden or he had established the Garden of Eden for uh, back at the beginning of creation. So there's a lot of the same terminology that's used. There's a lot of a similar connections between Adam and Solomon that are being built. And we're going to get into a lot more of those in, in coming weeks as we talk about the temple and its furniture and a lot of the different things that are in the temple that, that might help us in understanding um, why some of these things are the way they are. Um, so with all of that being said, as far as review, let's take a look at, uh, some new stuff. What, what, what's, what's happening now? So Solomon receives these messengers coming from Hiram, the King of Tyre. And, uh, Hiram had sent these messengers in as really a congratulations to Solomon upon his accession to Israel's throne. In all likelihood, and I don't want to get too far in the weeds here, but in all likelihood, this probably takes place at the very beginning of Solomon's reign. And you remember we saw at the very beginning of, of First Kings where the Egyptian Pharaoh gave his daughter to Solomon. There's a really great chance that um, the partnership between Solomon and Hiram, king of Tyre, which is to the north of Israel, we're going to see on a map in just a minute, um, is probably the inspiration behind Egypt coming in and trying to build a relationship with Israel because, hey, you're partnering with people to the north. Hey, it, you know, let, let's keep the peace here. You know, let's be friends. Um, so Solomon capitalized uh, on his, on, on basically his, his father, David's friendship with Hiram, the king of Tyre, and his expertise by inviting cooperation in the construction of the temple. So he's going to ask Hiram, king of Tyre, to help him uh, build this temple by supplying him with some materials. And I want to look at that passage here in 1 Kings. Uh, it's in your verse packet there, 1 Kings um, 5, 1 to 18. He says, now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent servants. We won't read all of this because there's a lot of verses in, in all of the, in these, these passages. I'm just going to read some highlights here. Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants 
to Solomon when he heard that they had, uh, they had anointed him king in place of his father, for Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, you know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now, pay attention to this, now the Lord... My God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord, my God, as the Lord said to David, my father, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build a house for my name. Now, therefore, uh, command that, the, that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me. And my servants will join your servants, and I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. As soon as Hiram heard the, heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, who has given David a wise son to be over his great people. And Hiram sent Solomon saying, I have heard that, that I've heard the message that you have sent me. I am ready to do all you desire of C, uh, in the matter of cedar and cypress timber. And so he goes on to tell him that, you know, he, he's going to provide his servants and, his, and in exchange, Solomon's going to provide him some things as well. And so the, the plan as they basically put it forward is for Hiram who is okay with this to actually cut, have the timber cut. And remember uh, Solomon had said, if you look on this map here on the, uh, on, on the slide here, uh, Solomon had said, you know, no one can cut timber like the Sidonian. So we've got this forest of Lebanon up here above Tyre. So you're going to see Tyre up on the seaside on the very North of the uh really the north of the north northern part of the screen there um and so Hiram is king of Tyre Tyre really owns most of this area of Lebanon up here on the north northern side or yeah owns most of it and so the Sidonians you'll see Sidon which is just up north of that stay on the coastline and go up north of Tyre and you see Sidon up there and apparently the Sidonians were really good at cutting timber uh, good lumberjacks in Sidon. All the good lumberjacks come from Sidon, don't you know? And so um, the the forest of Lebanon is right here next to uh, next to Sidon, and from there comes the cedars of Lebanon. Uh, not Christmas tree cedars, but think like uh, cedars, like uh, I guess you would probably see in like California, maybe big tall cedars. Uh, um, of Lebanon that, that provide really great wood that, that Solomon really wants to use. And, and, it, and so what Solomon procures from him is the plan to cut down the timber and send it uh, through the sea, through the Mediterranean Sea, all the way down to Joppa, where Solomon will receive the timber and then ship it over land all the way to Jerusalem. And you see Mount Moriah there in Jerusalem, 
where they will begin constructing the temple temple and will use the cedars of Lebanon to, to basically form the temple. And he also secured some skilled craftsmen from Tyre. So more servants from Tyre, people that were very skilled. And among these artisans is a man named Harum Abi or Avi, Harum Abi, who is half Israelite. And he is proficient in this, in exactly this kind of skill or craft. You, you're going to see this in your verse packet in second Chronicles. Um, uh, 2, 13 and 14, it says, Now I have sent a skilled man who has understanding, Huram Abi, the son of a woman of the daughters of Dan. So he's half Israelite, and his father is a man of Tyre. He is trained in the work of gold, silver, bronze, iron, stone, and wood, and in, uh, in so purple, blue, crimson fabrics, and oh, fine right. linen. So that's because we said the bill was who's, who's talking here? Let's see. I, Blake, can you mute all the microphones? I think you have control of that, don't you? Um, so anyway, um, skilled over uh, of, of all these things. He's a skilled craftsman, the craftsman of my Lord, David, your father. So uh, he's going to provide for him some skilled craftsmen. And this is sort of confusing. Uh, his name is Huram Abi. And the king of Tyre is named Hiram. And if you notice in the other passage in First Kings, he is called, the skilled craftsman is called Hiram of Tyre. Those are two different people. So don't get confused by that. It's, uh, his name is, we'll call him Huram, but they have very similar names. The king of Tyre and the skilled craftsman have nearly the same name. So it's like uh, the Bob Newhart show, my brother Daryl and my other brother Daryl. All right, so <laughs> so if it's if the Bible's not confusing enough, sometimes you get people with the same name, and then it just gets really, really confusing, you know. So, uh, but don't get confused by that. It's it's Huram is the craftsman, Hiram is the is the king. Uh, okay, so um, in return for the servants, for the skilled craftsmen, and for the timber, Solomon is obviously going to pay. Hiram in, I'm sure there's probably some money along with it, but, but mainly grains and other foods that are mentioned. So we saw in the last passage um, a few, a week ago where Solomon has been, has all of these foods that are coming from the nation of Israel. Well, why does the author give us that information? Not only to show that Solomon is wise, but that also God has in, in the wisdom that he has given to Solomon prepared him to be able to give these foods as exports to other nations in exchange for goods to build the temple with. So he's collecting all these, you know, crops, uh, grains, and things like that from the nation, and then he's going to ship them out as export and procure whatever it's going to take to actually build this temple. So it's it's a really brilliant strategy, and it's going to pay off quite nicely. Now, um, in 1 Kings 5.4, we see, uh, so in, in, uh, in the passage that we just read, verse 4, it says, um, But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. Solomon tells Hiram that he has been given rest on every side. And this is really important because when does Adam go to work? It is right after the 
the seventh day, God rests. On the seventh day, God rests. And, um, and so for, if you can imagine for the people of Israel, since Adam has sinned, they have constantly been on the run from enemies of various kinds. We see the, the, uh, the exploits of Abraham or Abram, Abraham as he's journeying through the land of Canaan where he is uh, being, ch- I mean, he's having to fend off his property and he's having to do all these kinds of things. He's having to lie to Pharaoh. He's, he's doing all of these kinds of things to, you know, try to uh, basically a- avoid uh, being killed or, or being taken advantage of. But then uh, shortly after that, the nation of Israel goes into slavery. Then, uh, then out of slavery, they're journeying through the wilderness, then into the promised land where they're having to fight with nation after nation. Then uh, Saul's on the throne. They're having again to fight with all the people that are in the promised land. Then David's on the throne. He continues to have to go to war with uh, people in the promised land. And this is the first time since the fall of Adam that we have the nation of Israel attesting to the fact that they finally have rest. They have Sabbath rest. So carrying on the connection between Adam and Solomon, here Solomon now is setting down in the land, uh, flowing with milk and honey, the new Garden of Eden, as it were, and having true, true rest from all his enemies. But not only does he have rest, God has rest. That that's the you you have you it fundamental to understanding the Old Testament is the connection and particularly the Davidic covenant is the connection between God and the King here Solomon before him David. Um, this is really important. When the King has rest, God has rest. When Israel goes to fight, the King goes to fight. When the King goes to fight, God goes to fight, and so. Uh, So to have rest for Solomon and for the nation of Israel is for God to have rest. So what happens when God has rest? Well, that means that we as his people are now, we don't have any enemies around us. So we're in the land flowing with milk and honey. We are relaxing in Eden. That's kind of the picture, right? Well, what what then does the king provide for the Lord to rest with me? The temple is a, is a picture of God's rest from his enemies and his sovereign power, that he is going to rest in the temple, as it were. Now, we're going to see that uh, in subsequent weeks that the temple is, does not contain God like you may see in pagan religions. And they're, they're careful to, to say this. Often the Holy of Holies will be depicted as God's footstool where God's throne is in heaven and, and the Holy of Holies is his footstool, specifically the Ark of the Covenant. And then also you'll see in this very passage where we saw, he said his name will dwell there. In fact, the priest, when they walk into the Holy of Holies has incense taken from the altar of incense as they walk past the curtain. And the incense there is to obscure the holiness of God from the high priest so that he wouldn't die. And we'll talk about that in, in, in coming weeks. But so the Holy of Holies, the temple doesn't contain God, but it is a picture of God's sovereign rest where he would meet with 
um, the, the, his people, as it were. But it, it sort of reveals that he has sovereign power over all his enemies. And so Solomon's, the impetus to build this temple is to demonstrate the fact that, that God has this sovereign power. And so Solomon is going to use labor from Israel, as many as 150,000 men under conscription um, that are basically forced. Hey, you're, 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 they're drafted is essentially what they were. We're familiar with the draft enough that they're essentially drafted into work and they're stonemasons and porters and things like this. And um, when all the arrangements had been made, the work commenced in the fourth year that is 966 BC. Uh, you'll see some places, maybe you might read a commentary or two that might say 967, but the, the pro, the, there it's, it's really negligible. It's going to be right there in between those years, 966 BC, um, which also, uh, as previously noted, was the 480th year since the Exodus. So we saw that in verse one, the author is pretty clear to, to let us know that that's the 480th, 80th year since, um, since the building of the temple. And you can see this in six one. I want to read um, part of this real quick. Let me, I've uh, gotten too fancy here. Hold on one second. In, uh, in our verse list, our, our verse packet here in one, in the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Zeev, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. You're probably thinking to yourself, maybe, I don't know how long, I don't know how long a cubit is. It's 18 inches. And so, oh, well, it, technically the word for cubit means forearm. And so the thinking goes that the length of a cubit is the length of a man, of a grown man's forearm. Well, if you... If you stood me and Bob Brooks next to each other, we're going to have different lengths of forearms. Okay, so so some of this is is an estimate. We think a cubit is about eighteen inches or so, and so um, you know that that kind of gives us uh, some of the uh, at least a little bit better idea of some of the metrics. Um, but so he, I'm going to go through some of the structure here in just a little bit. We'll read uh, a little bit further. But suffice it to say, he, he has, you know, built this, uh, this, or he is going to build this temple and he's procuring all of the things that it's going to take to procure it now. But the question is, why does the author go to great lengths to be sure we know that it was, it was definitely in the 480th, 80th year from the Exodus that this was built. It was in a particular month. It was in a particular, at a particular time in Solomon's reign. Why does he go through such great detail? Because the biblical writer wants us to understand that this is marking the inauguration of a new era in Jewish history. Um, we're going to see that you're going to see this happen throughout the Old Testament. Actually, the author will pause and will give you a year marker how long this was since the last time. He tells us in the biblical text, it was 430 years that they were in uh, fr from that 
they since they were in Egypt and it, it uh, marked the, and when they got out of Egypt, sorry, let me back up. 430 years since Abraham, when they got out of Egypt, when they were led through the Exodus and it marked the, the end of bondage. So it was the end of an era of, of bondage and they were given the gift of freedom. Well, the end of the 480 years is essentially ending the Exodus. All right. So what's, what the, the author is saying is, in the, it took us 480 years, but we are finally not wandering through the wilderness anymore. We have been given the gift of rest. This is the inauguration of the gift of rest coming to the nation of Israel. Now, we're going to see something at least kind of similar when we get into the New Testament, where even though the children of Israel have been out of Babylon for, some, for 500 years or four, 400 plus years at that point, it is not until John the Baptist comes in preaching that they're, they're invited into the promised land. They're invited out of exile. So um, you, you, we're going to see this several times throughout throughout the Bible. So just pay attention as you read that the, when the biblical author gives you a year marker like that, he's telling you something significant. He's telling you here, this was the end of our wandering. This is the, this is the inauguration of a new era when we've had rest on all, all sides from all of our enemies. Um, so the temple is fashioned and it's uh, 90 feet long. So that's the, the cubits there. We'll break it down into feet. 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and for about 45 feet high or so. And we see that the interior is lined. You can read through chapter six and then it continues on into chapter seven um, with a brief excursus on Solomon's house, but it, it continues on in chapter seven. The interior is lined with the, the beams of cedar. It's going to be lined with cedar. And within and without, there's going to be lavish carvings, decorative motifs that combine the, uh, to make the temple one of the finest buildings in history. In the seven-year period that it's going to actually take for Solomon to construct this tells us of just the sheer magnificence of the temple. Now, as you read the description of the temple, um, I think it's worth understanding that the description that's there in the Bible would not be enough for like a blueprint. So you're not going to be able to, to take the description that's in the Old Testament and go reproduce it exactly the way that it was. We get a general description. We get some very specific things like the, the feet and, and or how long it was, how wide, those kinds of things. But there are a lot of things about it we don't know. And what that means is when you go, if you Google on the internet what the picture of Solomon's temple looked like, you're going to see some artist renderings of the temple. But all of those renderings are just going to be, are, are going to be approximations. This is what we think it might look like. It might have been something like this. It might, it's obvious that either Solomon was given some more specific instructions that were not recorded in Scripture or more likely there were certain things that were to be particular and other things that he was allowed to embellish on and sort of, you know, make spectacular, uh, as, as much as he, as he wanted. Um, so 
we see that it was it was like this. Now we also see that there were basically just like the much like the tabernacle, there were three different divisions that were the the kind of the courtyard or the area outside the holy place and the most holy place. And in the but the difference would be the three areas that are going to be in the in the temple versus the tabernacle, the temple is going to be much, much larger. Um, in the tabernacle, the most holy place was um, was a, was also a cube, just like we're going to see in the temple. The, the holy place in the temple is also going to be, I mean, uh, sorry, the holy of holies is also going to be a cube, a perfect cube. Um, and, um, and so the, the, but the, but Solomon's temple is going to be obviously much, much larger, much grander in scale, and obviously too much more permanent. Now, it's at this point that I want to I want to stop the share on the on the um, the keynote for just a second, and I want to share another little screen here to see if we can take a look at give you a better visual of what this looks like. Shannon, can you see that? Is that okay, good. Um, so this is kind of uh, just to, again, it's an artist artist rendering, but it's going to be something along along this you know this nature as far as what it looks like. Outside the temple are two pillars. Uh, Yaquin is the name of one of them, and Boaz is the name of the other. Yaquin is a a name that means um, I think upright. And Boaz is a name that means pillar. Uh, so creative, but there you go. Uh, so uh, two pillars, they each have names. Then you've got this uh, bowl out here, which is described. Most of this is going to be laid out in 1 Kings 7, 23 to First uh, Kings 7. And you're going to see this particular one in, in 23 to 26. It says, then he made the sea of cast metal. It was round 10 cubits from brim to brim and five cubits high and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference under its brim were gourds of 10 cubits compassing the sea all around. So it's a, a, a massive bowl of water is essentially what we see there. Then we also had these things, uh, lavers, bronze lavers uh, or baths that lined the outside. So there's these stands that sort of align the outside. We're going to see this in 1 Kings 7, 27 to 39. He made 10 stands of bronze. Each stand was four cubits long, four cubits wide three cubits high. Um, this was the construction of the stands. They had panels and the panels were set in frames. So you can kind of see the panels on the outside and uh, form, form like a little frame around it. And then we get this little altar outside where animals would be slaughtered. Uh, we see this in 1 Kings 8. We also see this in 2 Chronicles uh, 4.1. He made a bron- an altar of bronze, 20 cubits long and 20 cubits wide and 10 cubits high. Um, and so some of this is going to be, uh, you know, a, a guess as far as what it, it looked like. But we, we see where the king actually slaughtered animals on top of it, with peace offerings and, you know, 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep and, and so on. So you've got all the outside of the temple is like this. You've got the little lavers, you have the, the bowl of water here, you have the altar here. 
Now, if we go inside, we're going to see the holy place, all right? So you're going to see a division. I don't think you can see my mouse. I don't see anybody on our, our things. I don't think you can see my mouse, but um, you're going to see this little guy standing right there. You, you can see my mouse? Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So there's this little guy right here in the, the middle of the, uh, the ho- holy place. And so we're looking, th- this is going to be the holy place behind this wall. Imagine a ceiling here. Okay. This is obviously one of those little cut across little diagrams or whatever, but there'd be like a ceiling up here at the top of the holy, uh, holy of holies. And we're, we're kind of ignoring that for just a moment in the, in the holy place here, We've got some temple furniture, okay? And so you've got these first, these 10 lampstands are going to be sitting here in the, in the middle of it, lining the walls. Um, then you're going to have the table of the showbread. You'll remember uh, in the tabernacle, we had showbread as well. David used the, uh, was the one that came and ate the showbread that was reserved for the priest, you know? But this would be sitting, seated on the, um, the, uh, the table in there kind of symbolizing God's provision for the nation of Israel, um, God's constant oversight of the, of their provision. Uh, and also for the priests to eventually eat, we have the altar of incense on which incense would burn. The priest would obviously take that incense and walk behind the curtain. This is, we're going to see in a few weeks where that, that incense actually shields him from seeing the glory of God, which would kill him. And so he, you know, uh, that, that incense was, was necessary as a, as a protection. Uh, so was, for that matter, the veil. We know in um, Chinese in uh, Blake, if you can mute all the microphones, I think somebody's coming through. Um, the veil in the temple is going to be torn from top to bottom at the death of Christ. So, uh, so that there is no longer a, um, uh, you know, a, the ne- the necessity of protecting man from God. God is going to take up a dwelling in man. So that's incredible. Um, then we see the Holy of Holies right, right over here uh, to the left here. And inside the Holy of Holies, we have two cherubim that are guarding the Ark of the Covenant. And we see the Ark of the Covenant right here in the middle. On top of the Ark of the Covenant, you have the, the mercy seat, which is guarded also by two cherubim that have their wings spread over the mercy seat. The mercy seat would be consider, consider it something like the footstool of God where his feet rests. Uh, but the very presence of God would be on top of the, the mercy seat. And so, um, that is where the blood would be sprinkled and things like that to, to make atonement for the sins of the nation. Now you may be thinking to yourself, Hey, you said cherubim are guarding the Ark of the Covenant. Why aren't they little chubby babies? Uh, so as we, we often get used to cherubim, uh, we don't know what cherubim look like. But there's a long tradition in, um, in ancient Eastern um, history that they had the uh, face of a lion and the face of a man they had perhaps the body of a lion and wings, but also the face of a man. There's a lot of different variations of that. We're going to see that this pop up in Ezekiel, and we're going to cover some of that a little bit later on. But um, if you know, if you can think in your mind, the Sphinx in uh, Egypt is probably a an ancient 
Egyptian depiction of a cherubim, um, face of a man, but sort of body of a lion. Um, that is sort of the traditional depiction of a cherubim. But to be honest with you, we don't know what the cherubim looked like. It could have been, you know, a tall man-like figure with wings. We, we don't really know. We know some things, but but very sketchy. One of the things that we see and the reason that they they put it the way they do is we see that in the, in scripture, God is described as sitting above the cherubim. And then when his throne is described, the things around the throne are depicted as uh, animals, like the body of a lion, like the face of a man, like the face of a lion, like the face of an ox and an eagle with wings and all, and, and all of this. And so you get this sort of uh, picture that maybe that's the cherubim that they're describing. And so it's, it's, we don't really know is the point. And so, um, that is kind of an overview. If you look at the uh, Solomon's temple, that's sort of an idea of what it looked like. Okay. Now I'm going to stop that share and go back to the keynote real quick. Um, hopefully that was helpful. Maybe it was a little bit too tricky. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, uh, if you have questions, certainly type them in or you can ask them in just a few minutes when we wrap this up. Um, so, uh, now, we also need to talk about the place where the temple is being built. The temple is being built on Mount Moriah, which you may remember goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, you remember that Mount Moriah is the place where God commanded Abraham to take his son, his only son, the one he loves, up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there. Um, and Abraham takes him up there and, uh, and, you know, obviously we know the story. God stops him, provides a ram in the bush, that sort of thing. It's also the place where when Israel was struck with a plague after David took the census, that was the place where David went and to a Jebusite, um, named Aruna and bought the threshing floor from him there and buying the threshing floor there and making a sacrifice there on top of that threshing floor was what, what caused God to, you know, stop the plague. And so, um, so David had purchased it. Solomon obviously inherited it as his son and then built the temple on top of that. So the, the place where uh, Israel would be sacrificing, you know, goats and rams and, for, for a long time uh, was the place where, uh, where Abraham initially uh, created that sacrifice and, and, and obviously was, was going to sacrifice his son. Then we know, obviously, the reversal comes in the New Testament when God will sacrifice his son um, for the sins of, of his people. So um, let's keep going. So we, we know that uh, Solomon builds his, his temple on top of Mount Moriah, we also know the year that he built it. We know the time from the Exodus he built it. The building of this temple is going to be known as First Temple Judaism. So you'll hear sometimes me say First Temple, Second Temple. That just refers to the number of temples that, Jew, that the Jews have had in their land. The reason why this is important is because sometimes nowadays you will hear reference to third temple, which is 
um, the, the Jews have, have plans, great plans of building a third temple. The second temple being Herod's temple um, in uh, that, that Solomon's temple is going to get knocked down by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon when they come in with the invading armies in 587. So Solomon's temple is going to last for about 400 years. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in and lay it to waste, take the people off to exile in Babylon. And, uh, and then some years later, Nehemiah is going to come back and help rebuild a very shabby temple. And then later, in just before Jesus's day, King Herod is going to come in and build a you know massive temple to really beef up the temple that um, that uh, that Nehemiah and Ezra had had kind of helped establish. Now, the temple that Herod is going to build is going to be known as Second Temple. And that is the foundation stones that you can go and see today is of Herod's temple, not of Solomon's temple. We don't know. Um, we don't have any real remnants of Solomon's temple. Um, so we also see then a couple of things that are, that are really interesting here in first Kings six eleven to 13 that are important for us to understand is that Yahweh repeats this promise that he's going to dwell within Israel and never forsake it. And yet at the same time, he makes clear that this is not an automatic, nor is it an unconditional promise. If the King of Israel permits Israel to turn the temple into a den of thieves, then Yahweh is going to, is going to abandon the house and he's going to leave it to destruction. And we're actually going to see all of this happen. If you look in, uh, in six, 11 through 13, I'm going to just read this real quick. Uh, it says, now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commands and walk in them, then I will establish my word, um, my word with you, which I spoke to your father, David, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake uh, my people. So it's not, it's not unconditional. It's conditional. You, you must walk in my statutes. You must obey uh, my, my laws and my commandments. Um, but you'll notice that in, in, in first Kings six twelve, and you, this does not come across in English, which is why sometimes it, it, it can be a little bit confusing as to who's, who they're talking to. God is using the second person singular to Solomon, you singular. We have the same word you and you for singular and plural in, uh, in English or, in the South, we have you and y'all. Um, but singular, the, he's using the singular here to address Solomon. And the indication there is just what I said earlier, that the, the relationship between the king and God is paramount. As the king goes, so goes the nation. When the king starts to fall into idolatry, that represents the whole nation falling into idolatry. And so God is quick to tell him, you must walk in my statutes. You must obey me. You must follow after me. And so this is one huge distinction between the Mosaic and the Davidic covenants. In the Mosaic covenant, you'll see uh, Yahweh's presence with Israel was contingent on all of Israel's faithfulness to Yahweh. But under the Davidic covenant, it gets narrowed down and specified to one particular individual, and that is Israel's king. You, king, 
have to walk in my statutes. That is, you, king, must obey all of my laws. So if you can understand what's, what's being established here in the nation, so just think about this for just one second. God, uh, Israel has fallen. I'm going to take this off screen share real quick. Israel has fallen in Adam. Adam is set up as its head. Israel falls. Okay. So um, Adam falls, Israel falls, the whole world falls. All of creation falls when Adam takes a bite. He is the head. God has then given humanity his law. It says, look, this is, you violate this and you deserve wrath to demonstrate the sinfulness of humanity. We find out in Paul, later in Paul, he says that the, the transgression would increase, right? So transgression is increasing uh, evermore after the law comes, after the Mosaic law comes in, because um, obviously mankind cannot uh, perform even the functions of the law, right? So, but God leaves this law in place, and then he puts in place another covenant head like Adam, but another covenant head to help Israel understand you have to obey me, but your king is very important. And as the king goes, so goes the nation. And what does this establish? But Jesus ultimately coming in in the New Testament and being established as another covenant head and basically a creator of a new humanity where he is going to not only obey the Mosaic law perfectly, he's going to follow it to a T and not transgress in any way. So therefore have no reason for the wrath of God to fall on him. Okay. But he is also going to be the king of the nation. Right. And so he, he is, as the king goes, so goes the nation. Well, what we find out in, in Christ is that Christ goes to the cross and God actually pours out his wrath on Jesus there on the cross. And so he takes on the punishment for all of his people. But because he was obedient, we inherit his obedience. We inherit the rewards of his obedience. Um, because And God has been teaching Israel this for the last several hundred years up until the point of Christ. So you see this, the Old Testament, um, if, if you don't understand it as anything else, it is a teaching ground for the world. And as we read the Old Testament, we can see clearly that God is laying the groundwork for everything that Christ was going to do. And otherwise, We'd have no concept of understanding uh, what any of this is about. Why does he have to die? Why does he have to stand in our place? Why does he have to take um, the punishment for our sins? Well, the whole Old Testament sacrificial system that Solomon is, you know, instituting, if you will, in the temple, but what, what God has given to Israel is helpful to understand that, that, um, that, you know, it, it's a substitute um, in, in our place to stay the the wrath of God is is uh, is important, and so the Old Testament is is teaching us that, and all of this is laying the groundwork for our understanding of that. 
Um, let's open it up for just questions if you have any or uh, anything. Michael, can you go back to the last slide real quick? Yes. Uh, here, wait, let me, before I do that, hold on one second. Well, if it's a pain, don't no, worry No, no, it's about not a pain. It. I just, I just need to get it in a, in a window first. All right. Mosaic Davidic, Mosaic Davidic King. Yep. Any other questions? I just had a quick question. I think I'm, sure. I might have missed it, but the, the second temple, you know, the Herod built, was it on the same location? Well, that is a matter of intense debate, but yeah, for, for all intents and purposes, um, we do think so. Uh, yeah. There, there's, there's some question as to uh, the precise location of Solomon's original construction. And there's some people that are right now casting doubt on it being in the location of Herod's temple, but actually just a little bit further south than that. We have, we know where tradition says Mount Moriah is. We don't, I mean, we don't technically, you know, we don't have a, you know, signpost from, you know, a thousand BC that says Mount Moriah population, you know, whatever. So it, we kind of know where tradition says, and that's where the second temple is right now. Um, but, you know, so I, I would say, yes, you may hear some other people. You may even see some documentaries that will point to a different location. I don't, I don't think they're right. So I think it, it is right now where we know it is. Yeah. Mount um, Michael, a question. Uh, sure. Dome of the Rock, do the um, Muslims establish it there because they understand it to be Abraham's sacrifice site on Mount Moriah? They, I believe they do see it as Abraham's sacrifice, but I don't think they see it of Isaac. I could be wrong on that part, okay? But one reason why they see it as a holy site is because of where, that is where supposedly Muhammad received his dream, uh, his vision, and was, you know, taken up. I think taken up to heaven or, or something, something along those lines, there is a place. And so if, if you, if you can imagine, I don't have the picture of it up, sorry, but if you can imagine the dome of the rock, the rock, uh, that big golden brass dome, that's so famous, you know, or whatever it is, golden dome, I guess. Um, it sits actually on top of the temple mount. If you see an aerial photo of it, the dome of the rock is just that golden dome and then the rock or the temple mount is much larger than that. It's a much bigger area. Okay, inside that the dome of the rock is a particular place where they think Muhammad had his vision. Coincidentally, that's also where most of the Jews think was the place where the Ark of the Covenant sat. Um, that's part of the reason why there's such a war over or, or, uh, such a, you know, I, it's not really a war. It's more a political war. I guess you would say over that particular place is because the Jews think that that is where the Holy of Holies was and where the dome of the rock is. 
And Solomon's Temple obviously would have been much bigger than the Dome of the Rock, but um, but they think that's where the Holy of Holies was. Coincident, or ironically, the Dome of the Rock gets all the attention in the press, but the the holy site of the rock of that the Temple Mount for the Muslims is actually the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is on the end of the Temple Mount. The Al-Aqsa Mosque is one of the is an actual mosque where people go in and worship. the The Dome of the Rock is more kind of like it's not quite a museum; it's a holy place too. But and people do go in there and pray, I think. But but um, but it's um, it, the Al-Aqsa Mosque is on the end of that. That that's what they really care about more than anything else. Um, and so yeah, um, so it, it's it's there's there's an intense kind of uh, you know battleground over it. And if you go to Israel, what you'll see is that the Muslims control the Temple Mount and all that's going on up there. And the Israelites control the security to get onto the Temple Mount. So um, it's, I mean, I'll tell you what. Yeah. And you, you went Real quick, when I was up there, I had a uh, Israeli Defense Force hat on because I had forgotten my hat and I'm bald. So I was just going to either scorch or get some whatever hat I could find. And so it was an Israeli Defense Force hat, a military, right? Israeli military hat. I had it on backwards in the security line going up to the Temple Mount. And we're standing there talking and an Israeli guard comes up to me and he says, hey, I appreciate the support, but you need to take that hat off before you get onto the Temple Mount. <laughs> And then he sort of laughed about it and I, I didn't think anything of it. But anyway, I, I, that was the closest I've ever been to death. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. Other questions. And isn't that where the Jews plan to build the next temple? Yeah. Uh, in fact, if you go to Israel now, there is a museum. I think that, it may not be called third temple, but it, it has a lot of third temple stuff in it. And I think they even have the temple furniture already built. I, I think that's what I've heard. I haven't been in the museum yet, but, but I, th I think that's true. And construction materials as well. Somewhere. Yeah, I'm sure they, yeah, I'm sure they do. I, I'm, I'm sure there's somebody that's procured all of that. Um, the Ark of the covenant is going to be interesting. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you hear some weird stuff when you're over there <laughs> who knows but you know there was a i don't know if y'all follow much archaeology but they went just recently found um lots of stuff in the dirt around the around the temple mount um they found a ring that says um navi uh, I, uh isaiah which navi is prophet and I, the name Isaiah, and it's a ring, a signet ring, which means that it would have been a signet ring for somebody named Isaiah who held the office of prophet to stamp, and it was right next to another ring found in the dirt for King Hezekiah, which is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. So sometimes things turn up in the dirt. Sometimes they're proven that it wasn't what we thought it was sometimes it's proven true we just time will tell but if it if that's if that holds up that's amazing so archaeology is awesome especially biblical archaeology 
Uh, as, a, as an archaeology professor of mine once said, archaeology is a friend of the Bible. Um, so uh, they, they, they turn up stuff in the dirt and they go, look at that, just where they said it was. <laughs> so, all, right. all right, well, let's, uh, let's go, go ahead. What? Isn't the Ark of the Covenant in a U.S. government warehouse in New Mexico? <laughs> it's in my my. Uh, it's under my house. It's under my house. You didn't know that. I was maybe I'm not supposed to say that, that over the internet. There's that, that documentary years ago with uh, Indiana Jones. Where? Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the Nazis found it, I think, or something. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh man, so many, so many things. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get out of here. Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, this time that we could spend together um, just pouring over the temple. And I pray that over the course of you know, the next few weeks and, and months that uh, this would be a really enriching time for us to just uh, think about it, to think about its significance, to think about the theological significance of it, what it means, um, what it meant to Israel to build a temple, what it meant to King Solomon to build it what it meant um, to your people, what it means to us today. Uh, All of those things, as we consider those, I pray that it would really enrich us in our our depth of of biblical knowledge, but also that that would lead us to uh, knowledge of you. Um, Because, you know, we could know the verses all day long, but if we don't know you, then it, it is worthless. And so I pray that in all of this, that the depth of biblical insight that we are able to gain would point us to a deeper knowledge of of who you are, which might in turn lead us into lives of holiness, of desire to be further enriched in fellowship with you, um, and to desire to bring others into that same kind of fellowship by sharing the gospel with them. So I I pray that all of this would not be for simply just academic pursuit, but for uh, a depth of insight that would lead us into a richness of relationship with you, that we would desire more uh, knowledge of you and that that would lead to lives of holiness on the outside. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.